Welcome back to Explain MD. Today we're talking about teeth. Let's start with the anatomy of a tooth. Think of the tooth as having layers. We'll be talking about each layer starting from the outside and working our way in. Everything visible above the gum line on a tooth is called the crown, C-R-O-W-N. The outer case of the crown is called the enamel, E-N-A-M-E-L. The enamel is a hard calcified tissue, and in fact, it's the hardest structure in the human body. Below the gum line, so out of our sight, that same outer layer of the tooth is now called cementum. Cementum is spelled C-E-M-E-N-T-U-M. Cementum is actually softer than enamel. It's made up of four different types of connective tissue that then attach to fibers that make up the periodontal ligament. That periodontal ligament then acts like a rope to anchor tooth to bone. The next layer of the tooth, so to speak, inward from the enamel and the cementum, is called the dentin, D-E-N-T-I-N. The dentin primarily serves as a shock absorber during bites. It consists of tubular structures, which, because they are hollow, allow for give whenever pressure is applied. Lastly, the most inner layer of the tooth is called the pulp, P-U-L-P. The pulp of the tooth is what holds blood vessels and nerves. Those blood vessels and nerves enter the pulp chamber from the bottom of the tooth. There is a hole at the bottom of the tooth called the apical foramen, through which the blood vessels and nerves enter and exit the tooth out of the gums and back into the gums. We'll talk more about the apical foramen in the next few minutes. I want to talk more about the microbiology inside of the mouth. Firstly, you have to understand there are multiple surface types in the mouth. By that, I mean, for example, we have the surface of the tongue. We have the surface of the tooth, surface of the gums, of the inner sides of our cheek, and each of these surfaces is colonized with a unique population of hundreds of species of bacteria, viruses, fungi, and protozoa. It's just like how people live all over the world in different countries. We share one world, but we live in different parts of it. In this example, the mouth is the world of the bacteria, viruses, fungi, and protozoa, but they all live in different areas. Now, how well you take care of your oral hygiene, meaning how religiously you brush your teeth and you floss, significantly impacts the makeup of that oral microbiome or that ecosystem inside of our mouth. People who have good oral hygiene, who brush and floss regularly, tend to have a pretty simple ecosystem of bacteria, viruses, etc. living in their mouth. In other words, it's predictable what would be living in their mouth if they're taking care of their mouth in the most ideal way. But people with poor oral hygiene have a much more diverse and complex ecosystem living in their mouth. And even if they have some of the same organisms in their mouth as people with good oral health, those organisms are in different ratios, in different balances. Basically, the population of organisms in their mouths is a little bit more chaotic and difficult to predict. Now this concept is important when we're trying to treat infections in the mouth because if we can predict what's living there, we can better predict what will treat it. 
So now that we know the main parts of a tooth, and we also know a little bit about the microbiology inside of the mouth, this will help us to understand some of the most common diseases of the tooth and gum system. We'll begin with basic dental caries, also known as cavities. Dental caries or cavities are caused mainly by microorganisms that generate acids on the tooth surface from the metabolism or breakdown of sugars. So it makes sense then that sugar-rich foods in particular contribute to demineralization of that protective enamel coating and subsequent tooth decay. The more sugary a food, the greater its potency in this respect. The frequency of exposure to those foods is also really important because that is actually what determines the rate of developing cavities. So eating sugary foods more often will make cavities develop more quickly compared to eating a ton of sugary food in one day every few months. Even diet sodas, which don't contain any sugar, can cause decalcification of teeth just from their acidity. Initially, a dental cavity is asymptomatic, meaning you don't feel any symptoms from it being there, and that's how they can sneak up on you. As demineralization progresses, or breakdown of the outside of the tooth progresses, pits or fissures start to develop in the surface of the tooth, and those are detectable by dental probes. That's one of the things that your dentist is looking for when they put that sharp dental probe in your mouth and they gently touch all of your teeth with it. They're trying to see if it snags on a pit or a fissure. As these pits deepen, with the enamel being worn away, dentin can be exposed. Once the dentin is exposed, that's when patients usually start to experience tooth sensitivity. And this pain gets worse the deeper and deeper a cavity gets into the mouth. I want to describe the journey to tooth sensitivity a bit more. Those tubules in the dentin can take stress because they're hollow, but with the overlying enamel worn away, hot, cold, acidic, or even sticky substances can pour into those hollow tubules to some extent, and those tubules actually run into the pulp of the tooth. The direct contact of those substances with the nerves and the tooth pulp is what we experience as tooth sensitivity. That is often the first symptom patients with dental caries experience. By the time we are experiencing tooth sensitivity from the temperature or the acidity of foods, this is considered pulpitis. Pulpitis is an inflammation of the dental pulp. It can occur when caries encroach on the dental pulp or when bacteria and other harmful organisms enter the pulp through the bottom of the tooth or through a tooth fracture. It is considered reversible pulpitis when it's associated with a mild inflammation of the pulp and mild intermittent pain that's only elicited when you ingest specific substances. This is when we consider the case to be reversible pulpitis. Treatment involves removal of every part of the tooth that is affected by the cavity and sometimes reconstruction of that damaged area. If there is too long of a delay, however, the pulp may become irreversibly damaged by ongoing inflammation. In irreversible pulpitis, the pain is often poorly localized, meaning patients are not able to say, hey, it's this one particular tooth that's hurting. They sort of feel the pain in the whole general area of that tooth. 
That pain is usually persistent and it's a dull ache by that point. A further complication of pulpitis or inflammation of that pulp tissue is called a periapical abscess. Periapical abscess is called periapical because of where it is located. Remember those holes that I talked about at the bottom of the tooth where blood vessels and nerves can enter and they escape from in order to go back into the gums? The holes are actually called apical foramen. When I'm talking about a periapical abscess, that means an abscess that is near one of those apical foramen. Apical is spelled A-P-I-C-A-L, apical. Foramen means hole. Now, when there is a periapical abscess, meaning an abscess around the apical foramen, that tooth will be tender to tapping, and there's often a local lymph node swelling in that region. If the pain is bearable, the infection is likely well-contained, and you don't necessarily need antibiotics before the dentist goes in to remove the pulp tissue and do a root canal and drain the abscess. If the pain is progressively worsening, or if the other teeth, the adjacent teeth, or deeper tissue look inflamed, that would be an indication of possible cellulitis, which is a more generalized soft tissue infection. That could mean skin, that could mean the soft tissue that's sort of in between the layer of skin that you can see on the face and the gums inside. In those cases, a lot of times dentists will ask that you start antibiotics before they do any procedures. You know, I say all this, but practically speaking, what I find to be common is that if a dentist is concerned about any type of infection going on in the mouth, whether it is a periapical abscess or if it's a more generalized cellulitis, they typically want patients to be on antibiotics before they go in and do a procedure. This makes sense because anytime you do a procedure, there is a risk of spreading infection if it's already there. And so the sooner you have antibiotics on board before doing a procedure, the less chance that any bacteria that is spread from doing the surgery actually causes a problem. You have antibiotics on board that are helping the body to fight it off. Now one more thing I want to talk about with infections is that sometimes tooth infections can get very deep. If there is facial swelling, fever, or trismus, which is an inability to open the jaw where it's stiff, that would be concerning for a severe cellulitis involving deeper spaces in the mouth, in the jaw, in the neck that should be sterile. Or there could be an abscess in those areas. In those situations, a patient would need IV antibiotics, and they might even need some specialist to help drain the area if there is concern for an abscess. If this is not addressed quickly, it can lead to rapid airway compromise, which means it can rapidly block off your ability to breathe. This is why healthcare professionals go into so much detail about your dental infections if you've ever talked to someone about it. They will usually ask something like, can you open your mouth fully or do you have any jaw stiffness? Are you running any fevers? Are you still able to move your neck in all directions? Are you still able to eat, drink easily? Are you able to stay hydrated? Can you swallow? Can you speak? Can you breathe through your mouth? Especially when you lay down, since that would narrow your airway a little bit more. These are all really important in determining how safe a patient will be at home with just oral antibiotics. And I do want to note, sometimes the antibiotics for these type of infections are really big and difficult to swallow. Now, I'd like to go into a few examples of very specific 
and common tooth and gum conditions that I often see in the clinic or in the ER. Gingivitis is inflammation of the gums without any loss of bone that supports the tooth. Gingiva, or the gums, are usually red, they're swollen, and they bleed really easily with brushing and flossing when somebody has gingivitis. It's not usually painful, but it is associated with bad breath. Typically, improving oral hygiene, including twice daily brushing, flossing at least once daily, and then use of a mouthwash can reverse this process in as little as two weeks, if done consistently. There are different kinds of gingivitis. There are some associated with plaque buildup and others not associated with plaque at all. Dental plaque-induced gingival disease is the most common form of gingivitis. Dental plaque is like a dense mass of bacterial colonies, and it's surrounded by a gel-type biofilm, which is adherent to the tooth. So it's a big mass of bacteria that sticks to the tooth, and to some degree, it protects the bacteria inside of it. Now, plaque begins to accumulate within 24 hours without regular removal. So if you've skipped one day of brushing and flossing, plaque has already started to develop and build up, sticking to your teeth. Now the degree of tissue damage that results from that plaque buildup depends on your immune system. Do regular tooth brushing and dental flossing or the work of a dental professional is the only effective way to remove dental biofilms. The goal of daily hygiene is to keep plaque levels as low as possible to lessen gum inflammation and eventual breakdown. Now, if plaque hasn't been removed in a timely manner, it can become mineralized, meaning just really hard, solid material. This hard, solid material is called calculus. You've heard that word before. It's like a stony material. Sometimes dentists will refer to this material as tartar. Tartar is mineralized plaque. At that point, this material usually requires a dentist to really scrape it away. Sometimes they even have to use ultrasound to dislodge it. So you want to make sure to keep plaque to a minimum level so that it doesn't become tartar and become difficult to remove while it also wreaks havoc on the tooth and the surrounding structures like the gums, like the ligament we discussed earlier. Now, there are several causes of gingivitis that can be caused by other factors other than plaque. These are less common than plaque-induced gingivitis, but I still just want to mention a few. Pregnancy gingivitis is a result of hormonal shifts during the pregnancy, so that can cause the gums to become inflamed and overgrown. This usually resolves after you've had the baby, and especially if plaque isn't playing any significant additional role in that inflammation, usually pregnancy gingivitis won't cause significant damage to the gums or other surrounding tissues of the tooth. So whenever we have a pregnant patient, we have to remind them Make sure you're practicing good oral hygiene to reduce the chances of plaque buildup, especially because there's already a chance of getting pregnancy gingivitis just from the hormonal shifts alone. There is also a phenomenon called linear gingival erythema that was previously called HIV-related gingivitis, but it usually presents as a brightly inflamed band of marginal gum tissue. These tissues are fragile and painful and there can be rapid destruction of the gums and the surrounding structures of the tooth. It is caused mostly by certain bacteria and certain fungi, and these organisms are not usually found in routine cases of gingivitis. 
That's why they were traditionally associated with HIV, but it is not limited to HIV. We have found since then that it is common in patients with any sort of immunocompromise. Anybody with a weakened immune system because of an illness or medications that they're taking can get an overgrowth of very destructive bacteria and fungi in their mouth that can then lead to linear gingival erythema. So that you can remember what linear gingival erythema looks like, linear means line, gingival, of course, is gums, and erythema means red or redness. So linear gingival erythema looks like a band or a line of red tissue along the gum. And usually it's where the teeth meet the gums. It's that section of the gums, right where the teeth insert into the gums. Treatment of linear gingival erythema usually consists of debridement, meaning actual removal of destroyed tissue, plus antibiotics, maybe antifungals, and perhaps antibacterial rinses as well. There are a few medications that can cause gingivitis as well. What I find a lot of times is that they may cause gum enlargement, but not necessarily any pain or bleeding. Examples of these medications would be some blood pressure medications like nifedipine, diltiazem, verapamil, and lodipine, phenytoin, which is an anti-seizure medication, and cyclosporin. What can happen in these cases is that the overgrown tissue protects the bacterial biofilm and plaque. And because the tissues are so large, it would hurt to brush or floss more deeply or get in those crevices. So an inability to remove plaque properly then makes the problem even worse. In rare cases, the gums get so enlarged that people really are alarmed about the way that it looks or it interferes with their ability to eat or speak. In some cases, the doctor may change your medication if they suspect that that is the cause of the gum overgrowth. Remember, not every medication has an alternative though, so it would be a discussion between you and your doctor about the risks and benefits, pros and cons. Lastly, I wanna talk about how malnutrition can also cause gingivitis. One that a lot of people have heard of is called vitamin C deficiency leading to scurvy. It rarely occurs in areas where there's adequate food supply, but we have to keep it in mind because there are tremendous differences in what our patients have access to. Not everyone lives in an area where fresh fruits and vegetables are readily accessible. And even if they do, not everyone is able to afford it. This is just one of the many harsh realities of living in this world, unfortunately. Scurvy is a disease process that affects all the connective tissue around the teeth. Scurvy looks a lot like plaque-induced gingivitis, but you can get clues as to what the actual cause is from other symptoms the patient may have and sometimes even their socioeconomic background. Scurvy is actually a disorder of the connective tissue because of impaired collagen synthesis. We'll talk more about collagen in future episodes. But symptoms of scurvy can be receding gums, tooth pain, swelling of the gums, redness of the gums, easy bleeding, but sometimes other symptoms give you a clue as to specifically what it is. Those other symptoms include things like bruising easily, getting spots on your skin that we call petechiae, and sometimes changes in hair texture. Treatment is usually vitamin C replacement, and the disease generally responds within a few weeks, but everybody's a little bit different. 
The last disease process I want to touch on, not because it's the only other disease process we haven't talked about, but just because it is a common one, is called pericoronitis. Pericoronitis is spelled P-E-R-I, which means around. Coronitis is spelled C-O-R-O-N-I-T-I-S. So pericoronitis is a local infection that's usually caused by food particles and other bacteria trapped under a flap of gums. Now, usually this is a flap of gum that's partially overlying a tooth. Most of the time, the tooth that I see affected is a wisdom tooth, so the teeth in the back, usually on the bottom of your mouth. In these situations, the gums are really swollen and red, and sometimes putting pressure on that flap will express pus from underneath that flap because that's where bacteria and food has built up. Now, if pericoronitis becomes severe, this can lead to that jaw stiffness or trismus that we talked about, can lead to lymph node swelling around the angle of the jaw, and usually the breath smells really bad. So treatment of pericoronitis usually involves removal of those food particles that are trapped underneath that gum flap. This generally requires irrigation by a dentist. But one thing to do in the meantime is to start hot salt water or oral rinses and sometimes even antibiotics. The type of antibiotic and whether or not they're necessary depends on your conversation with your own healthcare provider. That brings us to the end of our episode on teeth. I hope this has been helpful and thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. Please take care and stay safe. Sincerely yours, Explain MD.